Our text this morning is Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 29. Romans 2, 17 to 29. Sorry, I don't have the page number there in the Pew Bible, but uh, we've got Pew Bibles for you if you'd like to look there. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about a man you may have never heard of, but you probably should have. His name is Joe DiMaggio. Uh, DiMaggio is one of the greatest baseball players to ever play the game. He won nine World Series with the New York Yankees in 13 years. That's absurd dominance in the sport of baseball. His consecutive hitting streak, which means I realize that I'm the American here, he got a base hit every single game. His consecutive hitting streak was set in 1941, and it is still unbroken. He was world famous. If you're a fan of Simon and Garfunkel, you may have heard him in one of the lyrics. Here's to you, Mrs. Robinson. Jolton Joe has left and gone away. Talking about Joe DiMaggio. Uh, Ernest Hemingway sang his praises in the famous novel, Old Man and the Sea. And as if Joe DiMaggio was not famous enough, he married the 20th century most sought-after woman, Marilyn Monroe. Surely you've heard of her. Everywhere Joe went, he was praised. Uh, News reporters praised him as the greatest baseball player ever and as an even greater man. He'd walk into a restaurant. People would stand from their tables and applaud him, praise him. President Bill Clinton at his funeral said this about DiMaggio that he became the very symbol of American grace, power, and skill. Praise, praise, praise. What would it be like to receive praise like Joe DiMaggio? Um, I learned something interesting a few years ago. We don't really know the etymology, the origin of the word Jew. We don't really understand exactly where it came from, except that it came from this curious play on words of the Hebrew word praise. As in to be a Jew is to be a recipient of God's praise. So to be a Jew, to hear yourself called a Jew was to remember, ah, I am special to the most powerful important being in the universe. What would it be like to have God applaud me? Like Joe DiMaggio. Wouldn't it be incredible? Wouldn't that be the greatest feeling in the world to have God smile over you? Rejoice over you? How do we get that? This is what Paul has for us this morning. He he poses two options. Do we get it through religion or do we get it through relationship? Do we get the smile of God through religion or relationship? I'll invite you to stand as I read Romans 2, starting in verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew... If you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, 
If you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code in circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is only outwardly, who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. Not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Please be seated. Lord, would uh, the words of your servant's mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, would they be pleasing in your sight, our Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. So how do we get it? How do we get God's smile? How do we receive praise from our Heavenly Father? His approval, His applause. The option that Paul spends most of his time talking about is the religious option. Um, What is religion? What is religion? It's based on this notion that I can convince God to like me. I can do stuff, I can think stuff, I can feel stuff, I can be stuff so that God says, yeah, that's good enough, and he likes me. That is at its core, religion. And in that way, religion lies to all of us. And Paul here says, you cannot convince God to like you through religion. For example, you cannot convince God to like you because of how much you know. Now the Jews were rightfully proud to have God's law, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the scriptures, God's instructions for life. Verse 20, Paul says that the law is the embodiment of knowledge and truth. They relied on the law and they were convinced that God liked them because of what they knew about God and about his ways. But listen, if you think that God likes you because of how much you know about him and his ways, then you are wrong. If you think that God likes you because you know more theology, God stuff, than your average person, your average Christian, you've got more Bible knowledge, then you are wrong. And we need to let that sink in, living in the West, where we like to applaud and reward academic performance and smarty pants people, where we like to say that knowledge is power. Knowledge is not power to get God to like you. 
Neither is usefulness, Paul goes on. You can't get God to like you based on how useful you are. Uh, We said this in the life of Abraham, the special position that God's family had, right? They were blessed to be a blessing. They were vehicles of blessing to all the families of the earth. I mean, that sounds pretty useful to me, right? Verse 19, a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children. What a purpose, we think. What great use for the kingdom of God. All these ways are are ways that God delighted to use the Jews. But you may think you're very useful to God's kingdom and his purposes, but usefulness isn't useful when it comes to getting God to like you, just like knowledge. Neither is morality. And this is where every major religion in the world finds itself in direct conflict with Christianity. Uh, You've heard it said that all religions are basically the same, and that's not true. Um, All religions are not the same. Leaders of those religions don't claim that they are the same. Tim Keller has written about this in some helpful ways. I'll summarize some of what he says as he does this world religion comparison. Buddhism holds to oneness of the universe instead of to a personal God, a being. Um, And so to become one with that oneness, you actually have to detach yourself from worldly experiences Uh, And you have to shake off the stuff of human life so that you don't become too angry or too sad or too greedy or too selfish. And the hard work that you put into obeying that moral code eventually allows you to achieve some sort of inner peace and become one with the oneness. Hinduism hits you with a performance treadmill. You're always on it. You can't get off of it. If you're suffering, then it's because you must have done something bad in a previous life. If you're experiencing something good, then it's because you were in a previous life moral enough to get owed the good thing that you're experiencing. And eventually the hope is that you will be moral and good enough that you can finally get off the treadmill of reincarnation and good behavior and be released into eternal bliss. Islam, I think, is a lot clearer. I don't understand the Eastern religions as much as I do uh, Islam and some of the Western religions. In Islam, you submit to the will of Allah. No matter what, regardless of what's going on inside of your heart. And if you obey it well enough, then you get to paradise, to live with Allah forever after you die. Uh, These religions call God different things. Um, But what they share in common is this vending machine mentality of religiosity, right? I put something in, I expect to get something out, right? And it treats the God figure like this uh, system of rewards and punishment, morality in, oh, out pops my reward, and Christianity says no. That's not the way it goes. And if that were the way it went, then your God must have really low moral standards because perfect morality is beyond our reach. Listen again to verses 23 and 24. You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? 
As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Your morality, in other words, won't convince a holy God to like you. And neither will your religious association through outward action or through family, uh, family history. This is why Paul is going to talk about circumcision here. Um, what was circumcision to the Jewish people? It was an outward sign of being a Jew. And by this point in time in redemptive history, circumcision had gotten out of hand. And you had rabbis saying crazy things like, no person who is circumcised will go down to Hades, to the realm of the dead. No person. Can you believe it? That's the religious system that was there at that time in the first century. All you need to get to heaven for eternal salvation is the cut of a knife or being the daughter or the wife of someone who had been circumcised. Verse 25, 26, this is why Paul makes this clear. Circumcision has no value if you observe the law. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So that if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? What Paul has just said is really shocking. To call someone who was circumcised uncircumcised was a really big insult. And to call someone who is uncircumcised circumcised was also a major offense to the Jewish people. For our purposes, we should answer the question this way because circumcision isn't the topic of debate. Why do you call yourself a Christian? Why do you call yourself a Christian? Like Paul says about the Jews in verse 17, it's because I was baptized. I was confirmed. It's because I belong on the membership rolls of such and such. It's because I'm going to the membership class at Grace International Church of Oslo. It's because I go to church. Or it's because I was born into a Christian family. All of it, Paul will say, is worthless because none of that stuff will convince God to like you. And I want to zoom in real fast and just talk to the kids' table back there. Hey, kids' table, are you with me? Hey, hey. Um, God has no grandchildren. God has no grandchildren. He only has children. And even though you may be born into a Christian family, you need to trust Jesus personally. You do. Because God has no grandchildren. You can't trust in the faith of your mom or dad. You can't get to heaven that way. And so, through religion, all we're left with is this need to pretend or perform which will make us absolutely miserable. That's the side of Joe DiMaggio that uh, nobody talked about really until after his death. It was a biography written by a guy named Richard Kramer that revealed the man Joe DiMaggio actually was. All that stuff that was under the surface. You see, he had been pretending and hiding, wearing a mask. He said, Underneath the image management and the mask that he wore was a selfish, egocentric, greedy, competitive man who craved money and power more than anything. And anyone who threatened to pull off the mask or see under the surface was met 
with Joe's rage, and they were silenced by shame. Even his own family expressed this. They were some of the sources for that biography. So all of that praise, all of that applause for Joe DiMaggio, the great man, wasn't actually deserved because his life was a lie and a tragedy. And Paul is saying, yours will be too if you try to convince God to like you through religion. All you're going to be left with is pretending and performing with no reward and you'll be bitter and empty for it. This feels like a Lutheran sermon here, right? (laughs) So is there any good news? If I can't convince God to like me through religion, then what hope is there? If it's not knowledge, usefulness, morality, or association through mom or dad and church, then what is it? Verses 28 and 29, Paul gets to the good stuff. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Wow, such a person's praise is not from other people, but it's from God. What does it mean to be a true Jew? It means to be an object of God's applause, affection, and praise And it's to be that because you are in relationship with God and your heart, as Paul says, has been circumcised, not with human hands, but by God himself. And all who truly belong to God have been circumcised in their hearts by the Holy Spirit. This is where I give you my diagram. Uh, And again, I tell you, I'm not a graphic artist. So uh, just just bear with me. I'm borrowing this from one of my seminary professors here. Um, This is, uh, I've I've always found this really helpful. Um, It's a way of explaining the visible church and the invisible church to use some theological language. So back in the Old Testament, if you wanted to belong to God's people, you needed to be circumcised. Okay, so if you were an outsider, you needed to be circumcised. That's how you became an insider, an Israelite. Okay? You could be a Gentile, and you could be circumcised into the visible people of God. Um, and that's all well and good, but we know that in God's visible people, people in Israel, there were some incredibly rebellious people in that group, right? People who did not love God. People who were only circumcised outwardly. And therefore, if you want to be God's true person, you need to not just have outward circumcision or be connected to someone who is circumcised, but you need your heart circumcised by God himself. Something male or female can experience, circumcision of the heart. And that is God's true people. And that's who we're talking about. Who is it that belongs truly to God? Just like Moses uh, says, uh, or God tells Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 10, uh, verses 12 to 16. And now Israel, what does the Lord God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, And to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. 
Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Now what did God's people do that Moses is describing to convince God to like them? I mean, they were slaves in Egypt. They were bowing the knee to these pagan gods. They did nothing. They did nothing. But you hear what he says? The God of heaven and earth and all that is in it pursued them. They didn't start that relationship, right? God started it. Why? Because he wanted a relationship with them. He, God of the universe, wanted a relationship with your forefathers and their children and their children. He wants a relationship with you. Yes, with someone like you and someone like me. He loves you and he wants you as his own. Yeah, but he chose them, it says. How can I know that God has chosen me? This is a question a lot of people have. Um, I mean, the Holy Spirit has to be the one that circumcises my heart. I can't do it myself, not with human hands, right? So how can I know that God has initiated this relationship with me? And I would say two things in response. First, um, if you are within earshot of what I'm saying, you should assume that God is pursuing you right now. Because he's blessing you with his word, not with me, but he's blessing you with the good news. You get to hear this. That doesn't just go out to everybody. If you're understanding this at all, then you should assume that God is pursuing you. And reason number two is because you were built and designed to crave the very thing that God is offering you this morning. It is more satisfying than any other experience in the world. Listen, I love being married to my wife. I love hearing her say, Andrew, there's no one else in this world that I would rather spend my life with. Um, I love hearing my father say, son, I am so proud of you. Um, you probably love hearing your boss say something like, there is no one else we would rather have working with us than you. This, this experience of having God's praise, his smile, his affection is better than all of that. It's better than all of that. I mean, it reminds me of the funeral message that I heard um, a few years ago after George, President George Herbert Walker Bush uh, died. Um, his son, George W. Bush, also president, uh, spoke at his uh, funeral. And at one point, he paused his speech and he started to weep uh, as he talked about the way his dad lived an honorable life. He said, let us know the blessings of knowing you and loving you, a great and noble man, the best father a son or daughter can have. Um, he was not just saying that because he's supposed to and everybody's listening in and he's a public figure. He's saying it because he meant it. Because as it turns out, whether or not you like those guys or their, the way they led a country, um, 
George Herbert Walker Bush was a good father to his son. And his love for his boy was never, ever in doubt. Uh, George W. Bush talked about the way his dad loved him. And he said on the day his dad died, um, he had gotten a call saying, hey, listen, your dad probably only has a couple minutes to live. Do you want to talk to him? So George W. gets on the phone. He has really low expectations. He expects that his dad's just going to be able to hear him but not respond. And so George W. says, Dad, I love you, and you've been a wonderful father. And the last words that George Herbert Walker Bush would ever say on earth were these, I love you too. This morning, no matter what you've done, no matter where you're from, this is the Father's message to you. I love you, and I've always loved you, and I will never stop loving you. This is why I sent my son, Jesus, to be religious enough for you. He actually did all the things that you can't do. And then on the cross, he didn't take credit for it, but you, my beloved daughter, my beloved son, you get credit for it. You have my smile, and that smile will never, ever go away so that we could be in eternal relationship. That's good news, isn't it? You have the smile, you have the praise of your heavenly Father. Let's thank him. Father, thank you for this. Um, thank you, Lord, that uh, you're honest with us and um, you expose what our instincts tell us, which is we need to work hard, we need to do right, never do wrong to get in your favor. Thank you that um, you have shattered all that through your son Jesus who uh, kept the law for us and then gave us credit for it. Thank you, Lord, that you smile upon people like us. Please help us by your spirit to live in light of that reality, to really trust in you and to live in the overflow of knowing that we have your smile through Christ Jesus. Would you help us with that this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.